Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC, and I'm so grateful to see all of you here with us today. It is good to praise God and worship Him through the singing of songs. It is good to worship through remembering what the Lord has done through us as we celebrate communion. It is good to praise God in prayer and in fellowship. I am so grateful to see all of you, and I'm so grateful for all of you watching online. It is good for us to be together. We need to be together because the culture does not really want us to be together. Have you noticed that the culture around us is one of antagonism? The culture loves to stoke the flames of antagonism and pit people and groups and ideas against other people, groups, and ideas. We live in a culture of fear, and fear is stoked every day by media, by conspiracy, by people telling us that it's not safe to do the things that we want to do, by people telling us that we must live in fear and cower to what is around us circumstantially. We live in a culture where hatred reigns supreme. You're allowed to hate anybody these days, according to the culture. You can hate the president. You can hate the president-elect. You can hate anybody you want on the other side of the aisle or anywhere. You can call for all kinds of violence and all kinds of things, and the world says, this is actually okay as long as it's the kind of violence that we endorse. We live in a culture of death. Death is celebrated in our culture. When people glory in the death of the unborn and when people can call directly for the hanging of political opponents of theirs, we live in a world where death has taken over. We live in a culture that has relative views of the truth. Truth is relative according to the culture around us. It used to be the case that people understood objective truth existed and that we could access it and that we could learn from it. But today, truth is considered relative. You make your own truth. And even if there were some truth that were objective out there, you can't get to it. People are skeptical about truth. We live in this world where the culture seeks to influence us. For the two great power structures in the world are the structure of force and the structure of influence. We live in a culture where some people will try to force others to do things that they want, but there's another kind of power that exists, and it's influence. Influence is trying to get somebody to do something, to think some way, or to live in some kind of fashion that they would not have otherwise. And the culture around us is influencing us, seeking to pull us every day farther and farther away from the truth of God. But there is another force at play, seeking to influence us. It is God Almighty Himself, the triune God of heaven and earth. He pulls. He pulls us back towards Himself, back towards the truth. And the most important thing that we can do as a church is be counter-cultural. As the culture seeks to pull us one way, we as the church must stand as counter-cultural opposition to the lies. Counter-cultural opposition to the hate. Counter-cultural opposition to the falsehoods. The very most important thing that we can be as a church is Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. 
Because being Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led is the base foundation of everything else God calls us to be. If God calls us to be the light, that means we are acquiescing to His will. If God calls us to be the salt to the culture around us, then that means we are compelled by Christ to go to the world around us. If God tells us to stop sinning in some way or another, that is the Spirit leading us. Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led is the foundation for transformation. We know that the process of discipleship is the process of invitation, transformation, and reduplication. And transformation affects our head, our hearts, and our hands. And if we would be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led, we would see all the transformation that we need to in our heads, our hearts, and our hands. And this is what Jesus calls of us. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very ends of the age. At Glendale Christian Church, we take very seriously the authority that Lord Jesus has. All authority is his, and he has given us a command, and that command is to go make disciples, which is why our mission is very simple. Here at GCC, we've got a three-word mission statement, to make disciples. That's what we're all about. A good mission statement explains what the job is, what you're trying to accomplish, the goal that you're after, and what we want to do is to make disciples. That's what Jesus commanded us to do, and that is what we will seek to do. A disciple is a radical, come what may, all-in follower of Jesus Christ. And discipleship is the process of being invited and being transformed and then reduplicating that process in others. And Glendale is all about discipleship because Jesus is all about discipleship. But the statement of our mission is not the only statement that we are really, really keen to emphasize. We have another statement that's very important. It is our vision statement. Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led. As you see, the mission statement and the vision statement both come directly from the words of Christ. Jesus tells us to go make disciples. And Jesus wants us to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led, it's what we want to become. A good mission statement says what you want to do. A good vision statement explains what you want to become. We want to become Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. We want to do this because we want God to have the influence over our lives. We don't want the culture to influence us. We want to be countercultural. And in fact, if you are willed by the Father, compelled by the Son, and led by the Spirit, you are most definitely countercultural. That's what God calls us to be. And notice, importantly, that we also emphasize the triune nature of God because God is triune in nature. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, eternal, necessary, triune master of heaven and earth. The Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are the three persons of the Trinity. 
And it is our desire to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led. In fact, if you like this shirt that I've got on, and you've seen some of the others out there, we're selling these shirts for 10 bucks a piece. It's just the cost. We've got three different designs, and you can show the whole world that you are all about being Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led also. But what is it to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led? Let us focus in on this first element of the vision, the will of the Father, the will of the Father, Scripture has a lot to say about what the Father wills in our lives. Let's start with Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we follow Jesus in this prayer, we are acknowledging our desire for the Father's will to be done here on earth in our lives just as the Father's will is done in heaven and we are committing to following and implementing the Father's will here on earth in our lives. We are committed to this. Just as God, the Father, dictates His will in heaven, we are saying we will cede control of our desires, and what we want more than anything else is what you want. And so whatever that is, we are on board with that. Jesus, in fact, puts the proof in the pudding uh, many chapters later, another time he prays, this time in the garden, the night before his crucifixion. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays to the Father. Of course, Jesus would pray to the Father. The second person of the Trinity has stepped out of heaven. He's talking to another person of the Trinity. He's talking to his Father. And he asks him to take this cup of suffering that he's about to endure away from him. But Jesus says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus didn't just give lip service to God. He put the proof in his own actions, in his own life, and he drank the cup of suffering that was God's wrath poured out on him, which should have been poured out on us. Jesus was very serious about this, but we must ask, what is the Father's will for us? Well, the Bible explains in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, the Father's will. The Bible records this. This is the Father's will, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as Jesus commanded us. The Father's will is really, really clear. It's to believe in the name of Jesus. It's to believe in the one He sent. This is what we're supposed to do because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The only way to God is through Jesus. The only way for salvation is through Jesus. It is not some other God. It is not some unknown God. It is only and exclusively through our Lord Jesus Christ that we find justification before the Father. That is absolutely it. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as Jesus commanded us. And Jesus did command us this. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It's also the Father's will that those who place their faith in Jesus would have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. 
The word that gets translated from the Greek into English as believes here is the Greek word pestuo. Pestuo is a Greek word that variously gets translated to place faith in, to believe, to trust, and to follow, like with your actions through loving obedience. The greatest word study that I ever participated in when I was an undergraduate in Bible college was about the Greek word pestuo, which gets translated belief, trust, and loving obedience under the umbrella of faith. The word here is not just believe Jesus as though some mental intellectual assent were good enough. No, no, that's not what it is to believe in Jesus. When you look at the Son and you believe in Him, that does not mean you just acknowledge that He exists. That means that you place your faith in him. Oh, sure, it affects your head, but it also affects your heart. You trust him, and it affects your hands. You lovingly obey him. That's what it is to believe in Jesus. This is the summary of the whole thing. You can't just say, I believe Jesus existed. That doesn't get it done. And how do I know that doesn't get it done? Because not everyone who looks at the Father, or looks at the Son, sent by the Father, will be saved. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And you remember the will of Jesus' Father who is in heaven, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and to follow the command that he gave to love one another. That's the will of the Father. And so some people might say, but Jesus, I've done a lot of really good things for you. I went to church once in a while. I gave some money. I even went on that short-term missions project. Come on. I called you Lord. He says, no, 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 you did not place your faith in me. You did not place your faith in me. We must not pay Lord Jesus mere lip service. We must pay him our entire lives We must place our faith in him. We must believe in him. We must trust him. We must lovingly obey him. One of my favorite devotional writers, A.W. Tozer, brilliantly said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are at opposite sides of the same coin. Think about that. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not produce obedience. If you claim to have faith in Jesus, you need to show it in your actions. You can't just give him lip service. You can't just say, I have faith in Jesus. You'll say you have faith. I'll show you my faith by my actions, says James. We must follow it up with actions, deeds. Not to be saved, but because we are saved, we respond by doing the good works he called us to do. And any obedience that does not spring from faith, isn't really obedience at all. If you prophesy in the name of Jesus, if you preach in the name of Jesus, but you don't do so from genuine faith in Jesus, it's just words. It's just words. And our society is filled with words. Lord, Lord. Those are a couple of really great words. The English language is very strange. And those who in the English language claim to follow Lord, Lord, they don't always follow it up. English is bizarre in this way. There's no butter and buttermilk. There's no egg and eggplant. There's no ham and hamburger, and there's no apple and pineapple. Quicksand works very slowly, and boxing rings are square. Inconsistencies of language, they're not, they're not very significant. If you're inconsistent in language, and you call quicksand um, quick, even though it works slowly, that's all right. People get what's happening. Inconsistencies in life are extremely significant. And those who profess Jesus Christ and claim to follow him must follow him radically. 
Their words and their deeds must be consistent with what they profess. The Lord must see it in our actions. That's the Father's will, that He would see it in our actions. But what is it to be Christ-compelled? What is it to be Christ-compelled? To be Christ-compelled is to, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, think about the love of Jesus. For the love, for Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Compelled by his love. Christ loves us enough to come and rescue us. Christ loves us enough to step out of heaven and be born as a baby Christ loves us enough to live a perfect and sinless life away from the immediate presence of his Father and away from the immediate presence of his Spirit and be dependent on the Word of God that he, of which he is the author. Christ loved us so much that he died an atoning death on our behalf and took the wrath of the Father that you and I deserve. You and I, because we are sinful people, deserve to be stretched out on the cross, killed and separated from God. That's what anybody deserves if they sin against the infinite God, an infinite punishment. That's what we deserve. Christ loves us enough to take the heat that was ours. Christ loves us enough to experience this justifying resurrection. Christ loves us enough to compel us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Christ's love compels us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who was raised from the dead for our justification. We see what Christ has done, and it compels us to go share Christ with the world around us. The context of 2 Corinthians 5 is all about showing people that there is a better way, the ministry of reconciliation between God and man, and he has given us the opportunity to be the ambassadors of that message to a wayward culture. May we speak counterculturally to the culture all around us that pretends it's all fake. Let us speak boldly and zealously to the world around us so that they may see the truth and they too could be compelled by Christ's love. What does it mean, though, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but should live for Jesus Christ? Well, Galatians 2.20 explains it a little bit. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I crucify myself. I do what Jesus asks in Luke 9, 23. I take up my cross daily and I follow after him and I let Christ live in me through his word and through his spirit. Compelled by his love that endured deathly opposition from sinners, Jesus endured it all for me and therefore I must pledge my allegiance to him. I too can endure opposition from sinners because of his spirit and because of his example. In fact, that's what Hebrews 12, 2 through 3 tells us to think about. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him, fix your eyes on him, focus on Jesus, 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We don't need to grow weary. We don't need to lose heart. In fact, Jesus tells us in John 16, to take heart, to have courage, because Jesus has overcome the world. And if Christ has overcome the world, then his love can compel us to go to the world in a countercultural way with the message of truth. We're strengthened by keeping our focus on Jesus. Peter knows all about this. You remember the story from Matthew 14 when Jesus got on the, uh, the disciples and said, get in the boat and go across. And night fell, and Jesus started miraculously walking on the water over to the disciples. And man, were they scared. It's a ghost, they said, because nobody can walk on water. They didn't understand what was happening. And Jesus said, it is not a ghost, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, as he so often does, says exactly what we would say probably in that situation. Oh, yeah? If it's you, Jesus, tell me to come down on the water and walk to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat. He puts his leg over the side of the boat, stands on water, and is only the second person to miraculously walk on water. He sees Jesus, and he's walking towards him, and it is the coolest and strangest feeling Peter has ever experienced but then a different experience starts to wash over him, for he starts to feel the waves wash over him. The salty uh, sea starts to splash at him, and he, he thinks, what, what is going on here? And he takes his eye off Jesus. And instead of focusing on Jesus, he sees the waves around him, and he starts to plunge beneath the water. Lifting his arms out, Jesus immediately grabs him and pulls him up and says, Peter, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. You've got to focus on me, and we have got to focus on Jesus. We have got to focus on Jesus, for if we do not focus on Jesus, if we do not fix our eyes on him, we will stumble and get entangled by all kinds of sin. If we do not focus on the love that Jesus has for us, we won't be compelled to go to the world. Instead, we'll be influenced by the world. I don't want to be influenced by the world. I want to influence the world around me. And so we must focus our attention on Christ's love and therefore be compelled. So Father willed, Christ compelled, but what is it to be spirit-led? Spirit-led. The Bible has something to say about this. In fact, the book of Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Hear that again. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God, you've been adopted by God. And if you have been adopted by God, you are an heir, an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. All you have to do is share in the sufferings and you can share in his glory. You take up your cross daily and you legitimately place your faith in him and it's all for you. Now, this used to make zero sense to me. 
I never wanted to call God Abba Father. I never wanted to refer to the Father as Abba. I always wanted him to be master, master, king, separate, far away, who maybe took pity on me and allowed me into his court. I was super jealous of anybody who could say Abba Father. I was so mad at them because they had what I longed for, a really intimate personal relationship with God, and I was doing a lot of the work that God wanted me to do, but I wasn't experiencing God the way that he wanted me to. I was doing some of the stuff, but I wasn't following the Father's will. I wasn't compelled by Christ's love, for if I was doing the Father's will and I was compelled by Christ's love and I was led by the Spirit, I would be crying out, Abba, Father, because he is the Lord, Master, King of the whole universe. That's true. But he doesn't just call us servants because a servant doesn't know the master's business, but he's revealed everything to us. Therefore, he calls us friends. But he doesn't just call us friends because we participate in adoption. We are part of his family. We are heirs of the Father and co-heirs with Christ. That means all the authority that Christ has, that is part of the inheritance that I get as his adopted son, as the son of the Father, as a co-heir with Christ. This remarkable understanding helps me to see that everything I do in life is not merely because I have an obligation to God or I fear God. It's because I love God. I love him so much that he made me an heir with him. Thank you for making me your heir and your co-heir. Let me now go share that good news with the world because it is a remarkable and glorious, glorious thing. We are adopted by God. Well, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 and verse 25 tells us this. So I say to those of you who are adopted by God, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He's going to lead us. He doesn't just push us, He leads us. We get to walk next to Him in collaboration. And this is a really important thing because if we are Father willed, Christ compelled, and Spirit led, we can be countercultural to the world around us. And we need to be. It's important that we be countercultural. In fact, we need to talk about the importance of countercultural thinking, passions, and behaviors. Countercultural thinking, passion, and behavior is really, really important because those who are even in the ministry don't have countercultural thinking, passions, and behavior, and sometimes they display it in really, really unfortunate ways. Did you hear the opening prayer of the 117th Congress given by Emmanuel Cleaver? minister of the United Methodist Church, representative of the Kansas City area of Missouri, standing in his chaplain before the Congress, and he prayed, quote, give us peace, peace in our families, peace across this land, and dare I ask it, O Lord, even peace even in this chamber now and evermore. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, of Brahma, and of God known by many names, by many different faiths. Amen? and a woman. And after I got done vomiting, I started thinking about it a little bit more carefully, and I realized, oh, this is not good. This is not good. 
Now, Emmanuel Cleaver explained away the rage that followed, which was appropriate in my estimation, and he said, look, it was just a pun. It was just a pun that I was making. Don't overreact because of so many women who got elected to Congress. That's all it was. Oh, fine. If you want to explain amen, the Hebrew term of so let it be, so let it be. You've just prayed this prayer, and you're asking God to make it happen. Amen. So let it be. If you want to say, all right, all right, fine. Uh, amen and a, a woman as, as, as a jokey pun. That, that's not very funny to me. But when you have just prayed in the name of the monotheistic God of Brahma, the God, one of the gods of Hinduism, and to God as recognized by many different faiths, oh, you're off the tracks. You're off the tracks big time. There is only one God. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is only one God that receives legitimate prayer. There is only one God to whom we should pray. And there is only one name by which we pray, the name of God himself. That is how we go about things. And when we live in a culture, you could try to explain it away as making a pun, but I don't think so. I think it's an example of the lunacy of our culture. I think so desperate to impress people by means of the flesh that some even who claim to preach for Christ would rather impress others by the flesh than be persecuted for the sake of the cross of Christ. Some will go along with culture in hopes to get along with culture, but you can never get along with culture if you are a Christ follower. Do you understand that? You can never get along with culture if you are a Christ follower, so don't go along with culture. Culture wants you to go along with less and less tolerance for God. Culture wants you to go along with the dilution of the authority of God. Culture wants you to go along with despising the objective truth of God, and culture wants you to go along with diminishing the influence of the people of God. No. No. I will not go along with culture to get along. I would much rather be despised and hated by culture than to go along those ways. This culture pushes a certain way of thinking, certain passions, and certain behaviors. God directs different thinking, different passion, and different behaviors. Let us be countercultural. And one of the ways in which we must be countercultural is by focusing on the importance of incarnational community. Incarnational community. The incarnation means enfleshment and the physical embodied gathering of church in which God's people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to breaking of bread, and to fellowship is so radical. It's radical what you're doing right now. We take for granted and we sometimes forget how radical this is. Today's cultural trajectory is taking us away from the incarnational presence of God and toward a disembodied experience. Largely, our lives are lived in front of screens and phones and apps and this sort of thing. And all of those can be useful, but not as replacement to physically gathering together. Our relationships have become largely digital. And this is a problem, for we are the body of Christ. And that is not just in a theoretical sense, but in a very legitimate material sense. In such a world as this, the church's physical gathering is becoming less and less common. And think about how radical it is to gather just for a couple of hours and to pray and take communion and to hang out with one another, praising God and studying his word. Imagine how revolutionary this act will be if it becomes illegal. I pray it never happens, but we need to recognize the countercultural tide that we must push back. We must push back. The church, well, it's going to have to reteach physicality. You know that, right? 
There are people who are not here because they're in risky age groups or they might have conditions and they're staying at home. We are going to have to reteach the physicality of church in the years to come. We're going to have to reteach people how great it is to come together and how fantastic church should be with physicality of worship, where we stand, where we sit, where we express, where we clap, where we put our arms up, where we hug one another, where we shake each other's hands and give fist bumps, not just elbows, not just digital distance. No, no, no. Anything to remind the congregation that we are here together in the presence of God. Our culture wants to shut the church's doors, wants us to go exclusively digital, maybe someday won't even let us stream digitally, wants us to become disconnected, barely connected, watered down followers of Jesus. But no, no, we're not going down that road. We're not shutting these doors. We're not locking the doors. We're not going exclusively digital. We're not going to water it down. We will meet physically. We will pray physically. We will worship physically. We will study physically. And if you want to join me in physical prayer this week, Wednesday at 11, I'm going to pray for an hour right here. And I invite you to come join me. Now, if you're working, I get that. But I'm going to meet every Wednesday this year, and we're going to pray for an hour together. And then once a month, we're going to pray for an hour together at night. So if you're working during the day, don't worry. I'll also Facebook the devotional in the beginning part of it so you can participate. But we're going to pray physically. And when you are safe and able to come back, come back. Because when you are not here, you are at greater risk from the enemy. We gather strength from one another as the Lord brings his people together. The importance of the church and incarnational community is huge, but so is the importance of the church as a moral compass for our wayward culture. This church is all about progress, not perfection. We don't expect you to be perfect. We don't pretend to be perfect, and we know that we will sin and mess up. Now, we're perfectly justified before the Father. That's true, but we're not perfect in our actions and our behaviors. We sin. We mess up just like everybody around, just like everybody around. That happens but we still expect a certain level of commitment to holiness and Christ-likeness through collaboration with the Holy Spirit. This is only possible through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is a distinguishing characteristic of a counter-cultural church. Our culture says, you're fine just the way you are. There's no such thing as sin. Sin doesn't even really exist. You're just fine the way you are. Baby, you were born this way. It's no problem. Our culture excuses sin and then redefines sin, and then legalizes sin, and then endorses sin. We will be countercultural by holding the biblical line, by allowing God to define sin, and by calling people to genuine repentance. We will hold the biblical line by continuing to affirm truths such as human beings are the pinnacle of creation because we're made in the image of God. Human beings are supposed to subdue and fill the earth. There are two genders. God made them male and female. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Sex is meant to be enjoyed and experienced only in the confines of marriage. Life is to be protected. Life begins at conception. All life matters. Sin is rebellion against God. Humans are inherently sinful because of our fallen nature. But God is loving and God is holy. And God's holiness demands that our sin debt be paid. But God's love demands that Christ pay for us. 
by living a sinless life, dying and toning death, and experiencing a justifying resurrection. We'll continue to preach that the Bible is God's word, that hell is real, that heaven awaits those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, and until he comes back to judge heaven and earth and bring us home, we've got a job to do, and that job is to make disciples. When we downplay the importance of holiness as a part of all of this, we no longer are countercultural to the church or countercultural to the world around us, but it's exactly the countercultural nature of the church that attracts people out of the world. We must be different. We must be salt. We must be light in a bland and dark world. Jesus calls us to walk a better way. Christians always fail to live perfectly as Jesus lived, but we don't pretend to be perfect. We're all about progress, not perfection. And of course, we must also lastly emphasize the unimportance of self. It's not about you. You, you know that, right? It's not about you. We, we, we don't care about your preferences. It's not about you or me or any person. It's all about God. It has always been about God. It is about God. It will always be about God. This is countercultural because the, counter, or the culture tells us it's all about you. The culture loves self. The culture in which we live is obsessed with it. Self-promotion, self-actualization, self-preservation, selfhood, selfies, self, 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 self. Kill yourself, Jesus says. Take up your cross daily, never physically. Take up your cross daily means die to your selfishness. Kill self and live for Christ. That's what he calls us to. To be radically countercultural, the church must eschew self-aggrandizement and embrace the call to make God famous. Make God famous in everything you do. Make God famous in everything you say. Make God famous in every way you live. Well, that's great to say, but how can we do some of this? Here's a recommendation that I have for you. I want you to pray this week very seriously. We're going to pray about it on Wednesday. You can join me at 11 if you want. We're going to pray about and commit to being Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led. And very specifically, I want you to ask the triune God about what ways you can be countercultural in your behavior. Because not everybody is going to be countercultural in exactly the same way. Oh, just by placing faith in Jesus, we're all countercultural. But some of you will be countercultural in different ways. Some of us have to preach to congregations, some of us have to preach to smaller groups. Some of us have to lead our children in certain ways. Some of us have to talk to our parents. Some of us have to decide that we're going to share the lawnmower with our neighbor so that we can cut down on our bills so that we can give more to missionaries. Some of us are going to have to do lots of different things than we do right now in order to be countercultural, and that's okay. Ask God to put on your heart how he wants you to express countercultural living. Ask him. But don't just ask him about that. I want you to embrace personal holiness. I want you to embrace personal holiness. I want you to grow in Christlikeness. I want the power of sin to be less in your life next year than it is right now. Grow in Christlikeness through, through collaboration with the Holy Spirit. You know, being spirit-led. Embrace holiness. Now, it's not about perfection. It's about progress. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble. You're going to mess up. But Jesus has set this perfect example, and we can follow this example. Even if we can't follow it perfectly, advance, become more progressively Christ-like, and call the world to holiness. The way we can do that is by walking down the three lanes of the path towards Christ-likeness. Personal, you got to do it by yourself. Church-wide, we got to meet together in physical body, and we have to find a smaller setting. Find a small group, 
Find a Bible class, find a Sunday school class, find a group that you can serve with, find a group that you can disciple each other, find a smaller group because it's that smaller setting that will really help you light it on fire. And then make God famous by crucifying yourself. Commit to making God famous by crucifying yourself. It's not about you and it's never been about you, so never make it about you. Oh, you don't want to do something? I don't care, God willed it. The Father willed it, Christ compelled it, the Spirit led it, go in it. Oh, you don't want it to be tough because you don't want the culture to hate you? It already hates you, Christian. It already hates you. So why don't we just wear the hate as a badge of honor? After all, Jesus said, if the world hated you, it's going to hate me. Jesus sends us into the world so that we can preach to the world. Let us take this message of hope, of reconciliation, of love, and of influence counterculturally to the world before us. If you are ready to be Father-willed, Christ-compelled, and Spirit-led, would you stand up with me and pray this morning?